And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together today be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So over the past few weeks at our Tuesday morning Bible studies, everyone's welcome, by the way, if you're free, 9.30 on a Tuesday morning for an hour or so. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at various readings from the lectionary, which are set readings used by lots of different churches, including many of our friends locally. And those readings have included verses from the book of Job. Now, it's not often a book we turn to, but as we thought about it together over those few weeks, and by the way, if you're thinking of coming on Tuesday morning, you'll be pleased to know we've moved on from Job on Tuesday mornings. But I felt challenged by the fact that we don't look at this story very often. So we're going to look at it together on Sundays for at least two weeks, no more than four. I'm not really sure yet, but we'll see. And my secondary school, which was a very interesting place, uh, it was closed down not long after my youngest brother left. Um, I remember there being a lad a couple of years younger than me um, who was called Job. And people were very confused as to why he was called Job. And in the end, I think he put an E on the end of his name just to make life a bit easier in school. But it does strike me that parents of this, despite the parents of this one boy in this one school, you don't find many children called Job. I've never come across another person called Job. We have lots of biblical names. We have Benjamins and Micahs, Elizabeths, Marys, Johns, but Judas and then Job, not so much. They're not names we find very often. Which is perhaps, I think, a touch ironic, given that of all the stories of all the people across scripture, I think Job's story is one that many of us can identify with at some point in our lives. You see, you can read about Moses taking the Ten Commandments down the mountains, or you can read about Queen Esther rescuing her people from death, and never once connect those stories with your own life. But Job sits among the ashes and curses the day he was born, and there's an instant recognition. While so many of us may not name our child Job, we all wear that name at one time or another. Suffering of some kind arrives on most of our doorsteps at some point. And so Job's story is important to us because Job suffered in a general sense, but also because Job suffered in many of the ways in which we suffer. With his family, with his health, with his property, with his possessions. And whenever we suffer like that, any of those significant things that change the shape of our lives, we tend to ask ourselves a question. One question seems to tower above the others. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Why? Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Job asked why. And it's the way he asked that question that makes his story, I think, so helpful for our reflections. Job asks the question of God. He puts his question to God. And he asks persistently and passionately. And one of the things you see as the book goes on over many chapters is Job refuses to take no for an answer. 
And Job refuses to take Christian cliches for an answer. He refuses to let God off the hook. There's so much we can learn from Job. But the question, why do terrible things happen to decent people, is one that many ask well beyond church. We'll each know stories, no doubt, of good people, faithful people, kind people, sisters and brothers of the way, whose lives have been devastated by diagnosis or death, by tragedy or tumult. We pray, they pray, we pray again and again and again, and sometimes the suffering just goes on and on and on. This raises all sorts of questions that we don't really know how to answer. Now, people who don't claim to believe in God or to have a faith themselves won't have quite the same response to that, to those questions. Those who believe that the universe is purely a blind, random set of forces colliding together will be sad, will be crushed even when disaster comes to them like it does everybody. But without a God, they can sort of resign themselves to it, maybe even in some way become philosophically detached. But we, you and I, we've got a bit of a problem. Because for us, God is real. And God is good. So we're caught in this contradiction. How can a compassionate and caring God make a world in which we see cruelty and pain? How can a good and just God allow suffering? Now, for some, squaring this circle is just too big a problem. They can't reconcile it or they can't face the lack of a neat answer to that question. I heard the story this week of someone who, when asked if they'd ever been to church before, said that they went when they were a child. They said they went to about the age of 11 or 12. And then they stopped going, and at that point they found they just couldn't believe anymore. There were children at this person's school who had died, and his uncle was dying, and he was devastated. And he was simply told that it's God's will for these children to die without any other reasoning. And that was not a good enough explanation. I agree with him that that is not a good enough explanation. In fact, I think it's an abusive explanation. But that was enough for him, and he's never been to church since, and he's now in his 50s. How can a good and just God allow the suffering? Perhaps you know people, too, who have struggled with this question. Now, there are those who say that they've got nice, neat answers to these questions. Interesting, the Bible makes no such claim. What the Bible does instead is take all these profound, fundamental questions and sort of holds them up for us to look at them from a variety of different angles. Some books of the Bible shake a fist at those questions. They rant and they rave. Other books provide proverbial wisdom as to why there might be suffering in the world. Some of the Bible laments. Some of the Bible offers us promises of hope. Some writers of the Bible put the blame on us and our sins. Other Bible writers accuse Satan. And some biblical writers accuse God. All that to say, the Bible doesn't offer one tidy answer to the problem of suffering. 
And so I think one of the reasons that Job can help us so much is that whilst he doesn't give us a neat and tidy answer, he does steer us away from some bad answers whilst helping us to wrestle with the mystery of suffering and the mystery of God. You see, what we learn about Job at the beginning of the book, and feel free to read it from start to finish over the next few weeks if you want to, but be prepared, okay? What we learn at the beginning of the book is that Job did everything right, but he suffered all sorts of wrongs. We're told he was honest, that he had integrity, that he honoured God, and he prospered. He had a big family, lots of livestock. We read later in the story that he had never turned away from the poor either. That he always shared generously with everyone in need. And we read later that he prayed every day, that he prayed for his children. And then one day his whole world topples over. He loses everything. His servants, his flocks, his herds, his prosperity, and most devastatingly on just one day, all 10 of his children. Can you picture him in that moment? Just staggering under the avalanche of loss. He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground and he prays. But that's not all that happens either. You know, when there are those times where you think, surely it can't get any worse. And then it does. Job then finds himself struck down too. He's nothing left now, not even his own health. We're told he had awful sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And he's sitting naked on a heap of ash with a piece of broken pottery in his hand to scrape the boils. And then it all goes downhill further. Job's wife, the only family member that he has left, makes it clear that she has no encouragement to offer in this situation either. Why don't you just curse God and die, is her response. Now, there's a lot to be learnt sitting down on an ash heap beside someone like Job. And we'll look at that in due course. But for today, I simply want us to acknowledge the truth that the world is not a totally safe place. It's a beautiful place, full of all kinds of possibility and potential and wonders, but it's also a place of danger and tragedy. We wish that it were always safe, and we will spend, and we do spend, an enormous amount of time and energy and effort trying to make ourselves safer, trying to create the feeling of safety. We try to avoid situations and people sometimes who make us aware of the difficult parts of life. So keen are we to stay in a comfortable space. I think it's why sometimes people find it difficult to look grieving people in the eye or ask them how they are. It's why some don't spend time with those who are older or sick or other people whose lives are painful in some way. It's why I meet consistently people who go out of their way to avoid hospitals. It's why some live in denial and refuse to deal or even acknowledge the poor or people who are suffering with addiction. We can spend a lot of time trying to build around us a painless, pain-free world. The problem, of course, is that picture is a lie. And we'd all be healthier and wiser people if we came to terms with the truth that none of us are exempt. We could lose our loved ones. 
our health, our homes, our possessions, our security, none of it is guaranteed. One of the most sobering and humbling things about the work that we did with a night shelter over many years was to meet people who three months before had picture-perfect lives. Two mortgage payments, that's all it takes for someone to be without somewhere to live. There isn't an option to be free of and exempt from the difficult things of this life. There just isn't. If I had that shortcut, I promised I'd have shared it with you. And I trust that if you'd found it, you'd have shared it with me by now. But what Job wants us to understand is that much of what happens to us, and we heard in our New Testament readings from Luke this morning, that much of what happens to us, good or bad, has nothing to do with how we've lived. When we're at the top of the world and we can't keep up with all the success and adoration that's coming our way, we needn't see it as a sign of how special we are. Because we're told in the Gospels by Jesus that the wicked prosper too. And when disaster comes and suffering comes, we needn't see it as a sign of God's judgment because we're told by Jesus in the Gospels that suffering also comes to people who don't deserve it. A pastor friend of mine reminded me this week of the story of Charles Durning, who's an actor. And in 1990, he won a Tony Award from his part in the play Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I've never seen it, but maybe you have. And when he got up onto the stage to collect his award, he said something along the lines of, some of you here may feel like I don't deserve this award, but I have arthritis and I don't deserve that either. It's just the way it is. It's the truth, isn't it? Much of the good that comes to people, they didn't earn it. It's a gift. And much of the suffering that comes to people, they didn't deserve it. It's what happens. It's what happens in a broken world. Now, that doesn't necessarily stop people assigning blame, though. What they get is what they deserve is a refrain we hear sometimes. And that's what Job's friends tried to say to him. And believe me, we're going to come to those in the weeks ahead. But many of us, many of you, when pain has come to your life, the death of someone you love, the tragic decision that one of your children or colleagues make, the loss of your job or maybe your health, and you sit there overwhelmed by sadness or anger, how many of you in that moment heard that accusing voice from people around you or even from inside your own heart saying, this is your own fault. You have made this happen. Well, friends, we're told in the story that Job's suffering, the source of it was Satan, which in Hebrew, the language the Old Testament was originally written in, literally means the accuser. The accuser will often ask you to blame people who are suffering. The accuser will whisper in your ear when you suffer, asking you to blame yourself. Friends, if you're suffering in any way today, your pain is burden enough. Don't take on your burden, onto your burden, the lie that that pain is your punishment. Now, of course, on some level, we all bear some guilt because we commit real sins. And sometimes difficult things that come to us are direct consequences of our actions. If I don't brush my teeth, they fall out. There are consequences to our actions. But the great good news is that when Christ got up out of death, something actually got broken. Something in the fabric of the world changed in that moment, namely the power of sin and guilt and death to hold us. That's what was broken. 
That's what love has done for you and for me. And I know, I promise I know, that that isn't enough of an answer to the mystery of pain when we're in the midst of a difficult moment. And you and I know that there is no answer complete enough for a heart that is broken and hurting. The first question we often ask ourselves in those moments is why? Why did God allow this? Why did God let this happen? Why did this happen to me? But we know, don't we? We know that any answer that begins with the word because is only really serving to mock the one who is suffering and to make their pain harder to bear. But we still seem to want to hear it, don't we? Like moths drawn to a flame. Whenever we ask the why question, there seems to be something in the depths of our stomach that we're hoping for a because kind of answer that will make sense. But they never do. And so instead, this morning, as we begin these few weeks exploring this story, I want to give you two other questions that you might ask instead. The first is the where question. After we've almost inevitably asked why, we can ask, God, where are you? And the testimony of so many of our sisters and brothers and so many of the people in this room through the ages has been that God was with them somehow, even in the midst of the darkness and the despair. Last night, a group of us gathered here for a meal together where we heard the president of the Baptist Union talking about uh, how he has seen flashes of God's grace despite being given a terminal cancer diagnosis. It was moving. It was poignant. And I know that many of you recognize something of that in your own story. The other question I commend to you this morning is the what now question. Now that I'm in this pain, can I hope to find something else inside of this hurt? The power to do something new or to grow into somebody new. What do I do next? God, where are you? And God, what now? These are good questions. These are better questions for people in pain. But when we think about it, Job and Jesus really are brothers. Both of them were blameless. Both of them were accused. Both of them suffered what they didn't deserve. And they both cried out to God, why? And both in the end were lifted to new life. And all I really know how to do now, in the face of these huge questions, is to point us all towards a promise from Scripture. That whatever does and doesn't make sense in this moment, one day, one day, you and I will see with our very own eyes the face of God. And on that day, all the hard questions that we've been shackled to in this life will evaporate like mist. And all those tired explanations and answers will fade away like the grass. And you and I will understand at last. And God will wipe away every tear from every eye. That's the day I'm looking for. That's the day that God will bring to pass. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together.
And so now, good and gracious God, you who hold all the stars and the planets, you who hold our world and all the dark and all the light, we thank you that you hold us too. You hold all our ignorance and sin. You hold all our beauty and possibility. You hold all we've been through, all we've been and all that we will become. And so we ask this morning that you'd help us to hold on to you. Give us deep joy, we pray, in the mystery of you holding on to us always. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.